Tracy, Wisconsin. I'm also a principal of Biomedical School in Alba, Oklahoma. I was impressed with the writings that you've done and the uh, books and so on that you've been authors, uh, author of or co-author. Uh, some uh, physics books uh, in high school, uh, modern physics, introduction to astronomy, and co-author of uh, college textbooks. Uh, and that's basically it. I think uh, you're going to be leading us on a workshop on science, space, and the future, I believe. Uh, and this is not the title of this one. I understand the other one.
Now, that in itself is not so strange, but it now appears almost totally certain that our planet is the only inhabited part of the entire solar system. And they work out the mathematical odds that both of these things should be so by chance. And the odds come down to many billions to one, and the last sentence in the paper is, therefore, there is a God. Now, <clears throat> I want to make several points in our discussion today, and I want to emphasize discussion because I'd like to leave a considerable part of today's program for sharing of ideas and asking questions and other information uh, that you might want to contribute. The first point is this, and instead of passing out printed brochures, I find the feature to be much more useful to put the thinking through my hands and through your hands on the paper because we used to say in college the lecture is the process whereby the thoughts of the professor become the thoughts of the students and not to go through the mind of the one. But at least you're doing something if you take notes instead of bringing a printed sheet home and saying, well we got that in conference of print that but then it's there at home. First, I have four points, and I'll tell you how many so you know about how long it takes. It is my experience in teaching and writing science over the last number of years that modern science reinforces the reality of the non-visible genius of God. I'd like to give you a few examples of what I'm talking about. Not so long ago, one of our top astronomers in this country, Robert Jasko, came out with a little book that I highly recommend, God and the Astronomers. Dr. Jasko is not a Christian. Dr. Jasko is barely a believer in God. And yet I'd like to read what he says at the end of his book. For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. As he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. That is a kind of a shocker in the world of science. At least the people who have heard in the past that science is going to answer all our questions and solve all our problems. At the turn of the century, there was great confidence that in a few short years, all of man's ills would give way to the scientific method. This has not occurred. And a disillusionment set in. Not only did disillusionment set in, but in the world of physics, quantum mechanics set in. Quantum mechanics is the exact opposite of the belief in cause and effect. And the people who said that the universe must have a cause and therefore there must be a God now had to deal with the theory that said everything is by chance. And quantum mechanics reigned supreme. Then started the search for how the universe began. And conflicting theories were proposed as to how things got to be the way they are today. The two main conflicting theories were the steady-state theory and the Big Bang theory. 
study theory of Sir Fred Hoyle in Cambridge University said the universe had no beginnings and it will have no end. It just keeps regenerating itself and there is no sense in talking about a creator. I had a chance to talk to Fred Hoyle one time for a book I was doing and I asked him whether he realized what consternation he was producing. He didn't lock it very good. Yeah, there's a key for it. It was locked when I tried to get it. <laughs> And Fred Hoyle told me, no, he's not aware that uh, theologians are being are terrified by what he said. And besides, he said he is in no way trying to say people shouldn't believe in God. In fact, he has a new theory already, which is even more amazing than the steady state theory. Well, the steady state theory has since been disproved in the world of science. And the overwhelming evidence now is that the universe began with a big explosion and it will end with a whimper. That's the latest quotation. In with a bang, out with a whimper. The idea that the universe will expand and then contract again and will go back and forth and breathe like an animal who knows how many times over is no longer being accepted. Jastrow and the other astronomers who analyze the data of the recession of the galaxies say the universe is expanding forever. So here we have a direct scientific proof and we will talk about proof in another seminar of what proof really means, of the fact that there was a beginning and therefore someone who began it. This is an example from the world of astronomy. I'd like to give another example from the world of biology. One of the world's great physiologists, Sir John Eccles, recently shocked the scientific world by saying that we will soon be able to prove that there is a soul. I heard Sir John Eccles speak at a Nobel Laureate conference in Minnesota, and he presented a paper. If you'd like to look at it, I have it up here, and I have some other things that are free, some that are not. And one is called The Brain-Mind Problem as a New Frontier of Science by Sir John Eccles. Eccles, in this paper, says that it is obvious to physiologists today that there is something in a human being besides his brain. For example, no physiologist on earth has been able to find the part of the brain that is responsible for memory. No physiologist can explain, Sir John Eichel said, and I was amazed, and the story of this conference is up here, I'd like you to take a copy as long as they last, of the meeting of Nobel laureates when this was discussed great hush falls over the audience when Eccles says, man is a spirit. Because otherwise, how can you explain that a person, when he gets up in the morning from unconsciousness, remembers that he is the same person he was the night before? There is no explanation at the present time in physiology for this phenomenon. A person, therefore, is a conscious being, and this is what Eccles calls the mind. And he says the brain-mind problem of how these two are related is the frontier of science of the future. A second contact in support of what I've just written that modern science in very many areas is reinforcing the idea that the non-visible things in the universe are real. Let me give you another example. 
in the field of physics, in which I feel a little more involvement in physiology. Our 1980 physics text that has to come out, of course, in 1978 already, as far as the original writing goes, had to say something about the status quo of particle physics. What particles eventually make up the universe? When I went to high school, there was a proton, neutron, and electron. And we were pretty confident that that's it. Now we're up to 200 particles. Now we're talking about quarks. Not only one kind of quark. And quark, by the way, is a German word, Mrs. Sander and I will appreciate that his relatives sound the dress but it means cottage cheese. And I hate to think that the entire universe is made of quarks. <laughs> the man who made up the word quark may or may not have had cottage cheese in mind. He said that when he sat there one day trying to think of a new word of what the universe is made of, it just kind of came out, quark, and it sounded good. And people have been trying to find out what the word means ever since. But now we're up to 18 kinds of quarks, and we're running out of descriptions for quarks. No one has ever seen a quark understanding. No one has ever seen an atom. As a matter of fact, we're quite sure it isn't there. That if we eventually break it down into its parts, they are not real. Matter is made up of substances that do not appear, St. Paul says. Very atomic. I heard Edward Teller talk about this for three hours at the university in his latest theory of the structure of matter, and he had the whole board filled, and we were taking notes like crazy, and when it was all over, he said, Now, gentlemen, nothing I have said is true. He said, Now you tell us. He said, But it's better than anything you will hear anywhere else. Well, what is a quark? What holds the quarks together? And they must be held together very tightly because we can't get them out. If everything is made of quarks, we should be able to split the pieces into quarks. Well, quarks are held together by a hypothetical thing known as a gluon. Last month, the first evidence of a gluon was announced. Now you say, this is wild. Well, it would be wild, except we're spending hundreds of millions of dollars of our tax money looking for gluons. I'm from Long Island, where they are now building the world's largest atom smasher, Isabel. ISA stands for Intersecting Storage Accelerator. And I ask her, what's Bell? That means it's really beautiful. I said, what's beautiful? Price tag is $375 million. That's without overruns. It will not be finished till 1985. What is it going to look for? Gluons. It's going to try to break the quarks apart by taking protons and accelerating them in opposite directions. A new idea, you see. We've done it on the highway all along, but in Adams measures, we're just getting to it. Head-on collisions. That way you get twice the energy for the same amount of money. And by intersecting, you see, intersecting storage accelerator a mile across, by colliding protons head-on, we might be able to break the quarks out of the protons. 
and find what holds them together. Everything has to be held together by something. The particle that carries the energy to hold the protons together has been named the gluon. And we think evidence has been found. At least the 300 scientists who worked on it and announced it last month said it's the most exciting announcement in physics of the last 10 years. Well, why do I bring it up in connection with an evidence of the reality of the non-visible? Well, nobody who is looking for a gluon ever expects to see one. Because a gluon is an invisible, non-existent thing. All it does is transfer energy, and energy is invisible. It leaves tracks. All we will ever see of a gluon is a track on a photographic plate. And then when we see how the gluon holds these 18 kinds of quarks together, we may be able to find out how a proton is put together of three quarks. And the quarks have strange names. Some are colored. Some are charmed. Some are uncharmed. 18 kinds of adjectives that are pulled out of the world of everyday life just to have something new to call it. Because plus and minus is no longer adequate. That's in the world of physics. That's why I say, today, whether you're in physiology, in astronomy, in physics, or wherever, it takes a real effort, a conscious effort, to be an atheist. In interviewing scientists around the world about their religious beliefs, which is the topic for tomorrow, I found very few atheists, and these were the top scientists in their respective countries. And even the one who was, one in Norway, I will never forget, who told me, I wish I were not an atheist. I said, well, why don't you quit it then? <laughs> and he said, I can't. And for the first time, it really came home to me that a person does not, by his own reason or strength, believe in Jesus Christ, my Lord, or come to him. That man could not. All he could do was pray that he could also come to faith. Not by our own strength. But the evidence in the universe, what I'm trying to say, is such that very few scientists in the modern sciences are atheists. It is too obvious that there is a beginning to our universe and that there is a mighty power in it. Einstein himself said, the most incomprehensible thing about the universe is that it is comprehensible. And therefore, Einstein said, there is a God. Now, the God of Einstein is something we will also discuss in a different seminar. But from Einstein down, and if we were to pick the greatest and who's considered to be the most noble-minded science today, Stephen Hawking in England, very vocal in their belief in a God. Therefore, how much more vocal should we be as pastors and teachers instead of hiding and saying, well, excuse me, but I'm going to say something very unscientific. I want you to believe in God and the Savior. No, the scientists who at one time were very arrogant about answering all of the world's problems are ready and eager to talk about it. And that's the second part our discussion. 
warfare between science and religion is no more. I have an article here from the Milwaukee Journal of last month in which it reports on a very significant conference in July of this year. 500 scientists and theologians gathered at MIT under the auspices of the World Council of Churches. The topic was science, faith, and the future. That's where I got the name for the seminar. It was a thrilling experience to be at this conference. The most important thing about the conference to me was that it was called at the request of the world scientists, not by the World Council of Churches. The scientists of the world said it is time that we join forces with religion to solve the problems of our time. And here were people from around the world had earphones on to dial five different languages as these people were speaking, addressing the problems of malnutrition, of nuclear power, a great many other things, in fellowship with the churches of the world. Now, how did this state of affairs come about? It came about partly because, as you may be well aware, there has been a disillusionment about science in our generation. There are many people who feel that the problems of today are the problems of technology run wild. That if we had not given free reign and billions of dollars to the scientists of the world in the last generation, we would not have nuclear power to worry about. And we wouldn't have uh, world starvation because funds were channeled into other areas. And so in my experience, particularly in high school and college levels in this last generation, there was a shying away from the sciences for that reason. reason. Young people went into other areas. They went into social studies, into uh, psychology and other areas so they could help solve the world's problems in the feeling that if they would get away from the sciences that created the problems, they would help to solve them. But this is not how it turned out. What did turn out is that the sacred cow image of science at the Hopin, the pedestal on which the scientists were kept during the time of the moonshots and of other accomplishments of science, the pedestal was destroyed found out that scientists were after all human beings and that they could not solve all our problems. We found out also, and as was discussed at the MIT conference, that's one of its main points, <clears throat> that technology by itself can be either a good or an evil thing. That science without a conscience is a monster. And that if we keep teaching science as an objective set of facts, we are merely putting a knife into people's hands with which they can either slice bread for the hungry or slit throat in warfare. The technology of the knife is the same. The motivation of the user of the knife has to come from an area outside of science. Science is neither good nor bad. Scientists are. And how good or bad they are depends not on their science, but on their faith. And this has to come from elsewhere. That is what MIT said in a 12-day meeting. The Russians were there. 
They were there from all over the world saying that faith in God, and specifically as the World Council of Churches, faith in Christ must be coupled with technology. Probably the most emotional thing there was to hear representatives of the third world pleading, very vociferously pleading, that the race for new technologies should not enslave the third world all over again. That there are things that we need to be concerned about besides just new knowledge. As I mentioned before, I'd like to put the four points down that I'd like to emphasize and then uh, perhaps go through them again and elucidate any one that you want to uh, expand. So far, we've talked about present. That's where we are now. There's nothing we can do about that. We have science. We have tremendous technology. And I should distinguish, by the way, very clearly between science and technology. I've used those two terms. And people who are engaged in those two fields of endeavor are very anxious that you make very clear what a scientist is and what an engineer or technologist is. A scientist is a person who tries to find the laws that govern the universe. Pure knowledge, whether it's useful or not useful, is of no concern to a scientist. A technologist is a person who takes the discoveries of science and applies them to human needs, wants, and desires. They don't always work together. In fact, in the past, they have often been enemies. When you go to the university and study science or technology, you often don't talk to the people in the other field, because each one thinks he's better than the other. A scientist calls an engineer a pipe fitter. An engineer calls a scientist a dreamer. Each one tries to get the best salary when he gets out. Right now, they call for engineers is a little greater, and there will be more people in science than that. What we need to do is not only agree on the metric system, which they haven't done yet either. Engineers, for the most part, use the English system, scientists, the metric. But we had better get our two fields together and join forces with a few other fields for the good of mankind all together. Now let's talk about the future. Interesting coincidence <coughs> that two Lutheran insurance companies each sponsored a scientific conference on the future recently. And I had the good fortune to be the official reporter for each conference. And these are the uh, copies of the articles that summarize these. If you want to come up later, as long as they last, be my guest. The first one was the meeting that I referred to before of Nobel laureates that the Aid Association for Lutherans sponsored in St. Peter, Minnesota recently. It was the largest gathering of Nobel Prize winners uh, from the beginning of the prize until the present time, except for a dinner at the White House under John Kennedy. 
and there was a joke about that. I don't know if you're a Republican or a Democrat. They said it was the greatest collection of minds in one place since Jefferson ate in the White House alone. <laughs> well, what did the Nobel Prize winners of science, and the reason they gathered there, by the way, was not just because of the Aid Association for Lutherans, they paid the bill. They gathered at St. Peter, Minnesota, at Gustavus Adolphus College, a small Lutheran school, because Gustavus Adolphus College had a science building called Nobel Hall. And on the 10th anniversary of the construction of Nobel Hall, they did the audacious thing of inviting all the Nobel Prize winners of science who were still living to come to their little college and have a celebration in which each of the winners who was asked to speak could express his feelings about the future. Now, the ones I'm going to talk about, uh, you may not have heard of some, you may have heard of others, because somehow some of the winners in science don't become as well-known as people like Winston Churchill and Sadat and others who get the prize for peace. One of the speakers was Glenn Seaborg. Glenn Seaborg happens to be the professor of chemistry in California who has discovered, or I shouldn't say discovered, I should say manufactured more man-made elements than any other person on Earth. In fact, most of the elements beyond 92 are the work of Glenn Seaborg and his students. Glenn Seaborg got up and said that the future in science is a bleak one. Would say kickoff address. 4,000 people there. Why is it bleak? He said it's bleak because the discoveries of science are far ahead of the ability of mankind to absorb them. We haven't made intelligent use yet, he said, of the discoveries of a generation ago. In three or so. Now, I asked him, now, Polycarp Bush, where in the world does a guy get a name like Polycarp? And he said, because my father was a Lutheran minister. By the way, he said, who's winning in the Missouri City? <laughs> I said, never mind that, I'm here to write about what you think about the future. He said, no, no, we are talking about the future too. Polycarp was given to me by my father because he wanted me to be a missionary. He named me after one of the great apostolic fathers. By the way, Polycarp Kush got his Nobel Prize, Seaborg, as I mentioned before, for making new elements. But Polycarp Kush, for making up one of the laws that I referred to before concerning the gluon and proton and so on. Polycarp Kush said <coughs> that if we don't get our minds together. You theologians and you scientists, at this meeting and elsewhere, there won't be a future to talk about. Well, that's too long. There were three main speakers in science, followed by one in theology. I won't mention the name of the man who represented the church, but I was never so ashamed in my life to be connected with the Christian church. Here were the top scientists of the world saying that they want to hear what the church believes can be done about the future. And up gets one of these modern theologians who was chosen for the speech, and talk about a person who didn't know anything for sure. 
They were looking for eternal verities. In science, he said, the speaker said, no, we can't find any real answers in science. We must find them through faith in God. Up gets a guy who says, everything is relative. Well, the future seemed even more bleak <laughs> than ever before. The really hopeful sign of that conference to me was, and we became very good friends as a result of this later, and we were even talking about doing a textbook together because of the message that he had. Walter Bratton is one of the inventors of the transistor. I talk about something that has worldwide impact. In 1948, Bratton Bardeen of Shockley at Bell Laboratories made this little thing that has revolutionized technology around the world. Walter Bratton said, unless we teach the young people of the world what science really is, they're not going to be able to use our discoveries properly. And in the question period, I have a letter from Bratton here in which he underlines that statement. He teaches at a little college in Oregon called Whitman, or Walla Walla, Washington, or the Whitman College. He says, science is concerned with how things happen, never why they happen. The leaders of religion got into trouble by insisting that the knowledge received by revelation was absolute as regards both the how and the why of existence. And we must stop confusing those. And that is why, according to Bratton and many others who are scientific leaders of our time, there never should have been a conflict between science and religion in the first place. Science only answers how. Science never answers why. That is what is so thrilling, of course, about teaching in a Christian school. In teaching physics, I tell the students, now in this school, we can tell you both how and why. You ask a man in a public school, at least on the high school level, I should say that it's not always true in the colleges, I have more academic freedom at Nassau Community College than a teacher in a public high school. Strange thing about our laws in this country, and that's how it is. A professor can say anything, but a high school teacher must not mention God. You can never tell a student in a tax supported school why something is so, because that is an item of faith. You can never tell him that Isaac Newton, when asked what was the greatest discovery of his life, said, it is the fact that Jesus Christ is my personal Savior. You can never say that or write it into a textbook that will be used in a tax-supported school. I got a phone call once from the superintendent of schools of Texas after our astronomy text was out. He said, very good, but you mentioned God in here. So what's wrong with God in Texas? He said, cannot be done. That's teaching a religion. I said, I'm quoting Isaac Newton. He said, paraphrase it. <laughs> Thank God we can teach and preach in a country where they don't have to paraphrase God. The other conference was supported by Lutheran Brotherhood Insurance in Houston, Texas recently. Maybe some of you were there. 
250 representatives of all the Lutheran synods, and I didn't know there were 17 until I had to go down there and write what each one thought. There were 17. One synod has one church. One pastor. They all had to be equally invited representatives. And invited to the same conference, it was called the Lutheran Conference on the Future, which was last January. They invited to the meeting from around the world ten quote futurists. What is a futurist? A futurist is a person who talks about the future and gets paid for it. We talk about the future and don't get paid. And you're not a futurist. Here they are listed. Some of them you have heard of. Alvin Toffler. He wrote the book Future Shock. And you've read Future Shock. No longer future shock. It's already happened in 1970. It's the only thing he ever did. He's not famous for anything else. He has no degrees, nothing. He just happened to write the right book at the right time. It's a shocking book. And he gets good money going around talking about how much of his future shock has already been fulfilled. And what he told our meeting in Houston was that the thing that was wrong with his book, Future Shock, is, was, was this that he was far too reserved in his predictions, that the things that he said would happen have happened much faster than he had predicted. Well, what had he predicted? He had predicted that the industrial age will soon pass in the United States. And if there's one thing that all ten of these speakers agreed on, on the future, was that we are no longer living in the industrial age. And that the people who think we're living in the industrial age are going to be very disillusioned. We can no longer run a country or a world on the premise that more is better. And that more and more is better and better. We have got to get to a more realistic way of thinking, which, and I'm searching for the word that Hazel Henderson used, is another futurist, that's all she does. Hazel Henderson is just a futurist. No degrees, no real home. She travels in one suitcase around the world, preaching that simple is better. One dress that she travels with, that's what she said, and the time I was there, the whole week or so, I saw the <laughs> Simple is better. That if we don't get used to that, we'll perish in our garbage. I have a little article that was assigned to me recently uh, that I called it Way Out of the Waste Making. And I got the idea from the same sort of thing uh, that Hazel Anderson was talking about. Garbage may destroy our civilization. I didn't realize until I heard the sad data that we are producing twice as much garbage per person now than we did 10 years ago. I just read the master's thesis of a student on how to get rid of garbage. The whole paper was garbage. <laughs> <laughs> I had to get that in. <laughs> He's getting his master's in business administration this month at NYU. He's going to get a big paying job in getting rid of garbage better. And one of his conclusions, and I have no authority on what he wrote about, I just corrected the English thing. And 
one of the, the only real hopes in his paper is that we should make less. There are no good ways to get rid of garbage. We have to just produce less of it. That's the age we're in now, not the industrial age, the age of garbage. And that unless we get along with less, our way of life will not endure. One other speaker I'd like to talk about from the Houston conference, and he was a theologian, and this time I was proud that he was a theologian, it was Jürgen Moltmann from Tübingen in Germany. You may have seen his book. Jürgen Moltmann is the originator of what is called Theology of Hope. I forget what this book is called, has hope in the title. That's the name, Theology of Hope. Okay. Jürgen Moltmann, who spoke near the end of this rather discouraging week that we've got to start spending money like they were spending at this get-together, as Professor Fries said, costs lots of money. I've never been driven to my room in a golf cart before. <laughs> this motel had two 18-volt golf carts. And the snow. <laughs> it was in fact they told me that it had not snowed in Houston for a year or so. Jurgen Moltmann said that the future, in English there's only one word future, but in other languages there are several words for future. There are two ways to look at it. One is to look at what we're getting into. In other words, what we're doing now will determine our future. And that doesn't look very good. That, in fact, looks kind of apocalyptic, and that's what he called it, the apocalyptic future. It's something to look at with fear. The way we're headed, it doesn't look very good. And people have a tendency to be unrealistic about this. And it could be because of a good PR job that science has done. We're always expecting that some great discovery is going to fail us out. Somebody is going to figure out how to burn water in our cars. I mean, Edison did stuff like that, right? Great American know-how will fail us out. Well, you saw that at the World's Fair. You went into that carousel that General Electric had. It got better and better and better. <laughs> Except the last one dropped you out. <laughs> And that's the end of the right. <laughs> and they referred to that, and they said it's not a world's fair future. We used to think that, world of tomorrow. Not anymore, because science is at the end of the road with breakthroughs. We've already had more breakthroughs than we can handle. And the breakthroughs we're headed for are the ones we've created with the breakthroughs of the past. That's the apocalyptic future, and it doesn't look very good. To show how unrealistic people can be about the future, one speaker got up and said, I want each one of you to sit down in the next five minutes and write five things that you predict for the world, and put the year down. And then I want you to make a list of five things that you predict for your own future, and put the year down. Then that was put in the computer. These studies are available, by the way. If you get a copy of this article, it's not quite right for us. About the 250 Lutheran leaders of America 
predicted for the future. All the Senate presidents and everybody, and lower echelons of the whole Do you know that when that study was printed on the board, that one person, and by the way, nobody predicted his own death. <laughs> nobody wanted to think about that today. That was the shortest thing you could have written down. I'm going to die. Nobody did that. One person wrote down for the world that in 1985 there's going to be a nuclear war. And then on his own list, 1985, he's going to take a vacation in Florida. <laughs> See, we apply different standards to the world than we do to ourselves. The world's going to hell in a handbasket, but we're going to Florida. <laughs> Because I've worked so hard, I deserve it, you see. <laughs> Molten, excuse me, question. Yeah, can you give us some feedback why that conference was so pessimistic? Our future is normally very pessimistic. <laughs> or, uh, well, the, the theologians that were there, the feedback that I got was that the future. One expression was that the little Jewish theologian that was there was probably the most young. Uh, yeah, and probably had a, more optimism about a future. Uh, can you give us well, some insights in that? Yeah, let, okay. Uh, I'll expand on that a little bit. I want to finish with Wolfen now because his second point was that there is another kind of future. Not only is there a future that is the result of our past. But there is also a future that God has in store for us, over which we have no control. So there is one future that we make, and there is another future that God has already prepared. And the Christian knows that the future that God has prepared for him is not apocalyptic. It's not one of fear. It's one of hope in the Messiah. And not just in the after, not just in heaven. But the Christian can live in messianic hope here and now. So as Christian pastors and teachers, what we ought to emphasize, I take away from that conference, is that the Christian does not have to rely on the blunders of the past to determine what will happen in the future, because God still controls the future. It is not a cause and effect of our own past. It is a result of God's will. I told a, uh, a college class recently that Kepler, who was a great Lutheran astronomer, probably the greatest astronomer who ever lived, figured all the planets out. But Mercury didn't go where he wanted. Maybe it was Newton. I'm getting two of them mixed. I better check very much. Anyway, they were both Christians. And they asked Newton, how come Mercury doesn't go the right way? And Newton said, well, every so often, God comes down. And he takes his finger and he shoves it a little bit against Mercury. And you know, it was that remark by Newton that got Einstein going on his life's work. Einstein said, I don't think God comes down and shoves there with his finger. I think there's something that God does that's much more refined than this. I'm going to find it. Einstein used to say, Raffiniert ist der Herrgott, aber boshaft ist der nicht. 
that's written over the Institute for Advanced Studies in Princeton, in Germany, which means God is very sophisticated, but he's not malicious. He's much smarter than we think, but he's not tricky. And Einstein found a few more refined aspects of God's laws, and still not all. Hawking has now found where Einstein made his mistakes. Well, expanding a little bit on what you just mentioned, it's very true that in comparing, and I had to be very careful, maybe it's good I can say this a little bit off the record, because when you write this thing up, I was scared to death that I would write something about one senate that they didn't like, you know, and didn't want to say anything about anybody to make them sound like they didn't learn from this context. I called the president of one senate up in, in Canada, was the uh, Estonian senator, one of them, to make sure that I had quoted him right. And he, boy, he was emotional. And on the phone, it's a little slower, please, I have to get this all down. Handed it all in, they didn't print it. <laughs> Maybe it was just as well, because what he took away from the conference was that we must never forget that religious freedom does not exist in large parts of the world. And that until we solve that problem, how can we talk about any future? Having come from bondage in the Soviet-controlled nation, we were concerned that there were people who were saying things about the church in Russia which were not true. There was no liberty to say. Anyhow, one of the things that you just mentioned, it's very true that it turned out that the theologians were more reserved and guarded and even pessimistic in their outlook, whereas they should have been in messianic hope leading the way again. And it was Hilt, the Jewish uh, physicist, before he became a futurist. Several of these people were scientists first and then and they found out that being a futurist is even more demand than being an engineer in the first time because there is no oversupply of futurists. Nobody really knows what they are. So, Jung was the one who kept needling, and I don't know whether you were in any of the sectional meetings, and I was particularly interested in how he kept needling some of the Missouri Synod people in that meeting. Uh, in fact, it was kind of hard to tell without looking at the badge which movement you were looking at. That was interesting to me, too. Uh, I have come to think over the past years that you can tell one from this set of nets that are coming through the door by whether he scowls or smiles or what. But <laughs> one thing I knew when the uh, woman pastor sat down in one of the section meetings was not in his worst in the past. But anyhow, you kept needling this one person and saying, I want you to think. <laughs> Well, that might be something new, but anyway. <laughs> because he was he was getting pat answers all the time. Newt was raising issues, and the man was saying, well, everything will turn out all right, you know. No, he said, that's not why I came. I wanted you to get shook up and get mad or, or worried or something, so that you'll do something and change you. So maybe that was his purpose. And he was the one I think you're referring to who had the most... Uh, optimism that we can change things if we want to. It's in, still in control. It's under our control if we decide that we want to. Well, I'd like to finish with number three here by saying that certainly the answer is not, as was once thought, that the world would be better off 
with less religion or science, seem to say that if we could solve more things than God, as we cut the trees down, God has to get behind the next one, you know, the appearing and disappearing trees. But the less religion we have, the more rationalism there is, and the fewer problems we'll have. No. Now, it's almost the other way around. People are beginning to say, maybe the less science we have, the less trouble we get into. Obviously, we need more of both. Science is a gift of God. Our faith is a gift from God. We need more of both. We cannot solve the problems of garbage by getting rid of the incinerators, you know. They're just pile up. We need more technology. We need to apply it better. And that takes more know-how, both from the how and the why standpoint. And the last part, is kind of a wrap-up, which to me comes out very powerfully in scriptures. We're very concerned about energy. Well, you know, there's no such thing as an energy shortage. The first day of physics class, I make it very clear to the students that energy cannot be created or destroyed. The last time energy was created was when God made the universe, and he put it all there, all the energy. In fact, my theory is that when God said, let there be light, light means the entire electromagnetic spectrum, and it means all energy. And from energy, you can make everything. It is now possible, and I've seen it at Brookhaven Laboratory, to take two beams of light, shine them together, and have a piece of matter falling down. How much longer will it take before we can take that same beam of light and send a hand sandwich to the starving people of China? No more wonderful, really, than sending a color TV program. We can now create matter out of energy, because everything is a form of energy. Matter is a form of energy. That is really the meaning of this equation. Energy and matter are the same thing. You can change one into the other and back again. Well, God said, let there be energy, and there's been plenty of it ever since. We don't have a shortage of energy. We have a shortage of ways of shoving it around. There's just as much energy after you drive your car as before you put the gas in, but now it's up in the air somewhere. We've got to learn how to use it properly and transform it from one kind into the other. And if we want power, where can we go where we have a greater source of power than with our almighty God? The word power, and I looked it up in Cruden's exhaustive concordance, is in the Bible over 200 times. The word power. And it seems to me it breaks out into three kinds of power. The power of a creating God. I'll tell you, there is no greater power than this holding the protons together. The power of a God who can glue the gluons is at our disposal as Christians. The power of the creating God is still there. It's not that he comes down and shoves mercury once in a while but he comes down and intervenes in human affairs when we ask him. 
The second kind of power I see in Scripture is the power that came through Christ. How often doesn't it use the term power in describing our Lord and Savior? In Matthew 9, 6, it says, The Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Even the people who saw the miracles realized that that takes more power than to make a lame person walk. They said, oh, we know about lame people walking, but only God can forgive sins. I heard a story recently that convinces me thoroughly that this power of Christ to forgive sins and as a result heal not only lame but other kinds of illness is still very much here at our beck and call. I heard about a man who was crippled from the waist down ever since World War II in the hospital all this time. And the chaplain in the hospital came to him one day and said, I'd like to talk to you and what happened to you because I understand that this crippling of your body took place at a specific time in World War II and that there was not really any physical injury involved. And the man said, yes, that's true. It was on Christmas Eve. I was in a shell hole on the front, and a German soldier came running at me, and he had something draped over his neck that looked like hand grenades. And he was yelling something. And I couldn't understand what he was yelling, and he came jumping at me, and I bayoneted him to death. Then I saw that what he had around his neck was two bottles of wine. And what he said to me in his dying breath was, Merry Christmas. And from that moment on, the man was paralyzed with guilt. And the chaplain said, let's go into the chapel and pray together. And they went and prayed, and the chaplain told him, you know, even the guilt of that horrible deed that has paralyzed you, that is also forgiven. Believe that. And the man got up and walked. No different from Christ coming when the lame man was brought to the roof and they said, get up, get up to bed. But the sins were forgiven. That was the greater power. It seems to me there is another kind of power. And that is the power that comes through the Holy Spirit. Ye shall have power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Acts 1.8 And the power that has exploded the Big Bang and it is still continuing and that glues the gluons and the photons together, what is that compared to the power that transforms a human life and that energizes Christian in his witness. You imagine unleashing this power in every believing Christian. I read on the plane this morning, it's filled with what the Pope did in the New York Times on every page. And when he had that tremendous ovation at Madison Square Garden yesterday, with 16,000 teenage kids yelling and yelling, they talked to one of the kids coming out. What did that mean to you when the Pope said that what you should do as young people 
is to be Christ's witnesses. And the sad thing at the end of this article was that this young person said, well, it didn't mean to me that I should go out and talk to anybody about Christ. It meant that I should be uh, thinking of the things that Christ did. Well, that's good in itself, I suppose. But how can there be such a thing as a person energized by the power we've been discussing and not showing it? It reminds me of the fellow who went to college and his father told him, now son, you'll get to college and there's a lot of unbelieving people and there'll be a new way of life there. They'll threaten you with your standards of Christianity.